This morning we're going to be in John chapter 14, and the last time we saw that the Lord really sacked his disciples with some hard news of betrayal, death, departure, separation, sorrow, and here he reassures them. And this is just like our God, that he reveals the painful truth to us. He reveals it in his word. But what he also does is lets us know that he is with us, that he has a plan for our lives. And I think the challenge is, you know, even as a non-believer, I would cry out to God when things were going terrible. But then when things got better, I would ignore him. And that was just my lifestyle. So, you know, as I walk, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. But let's also not forget that when we're out of that valley of the shadow of death and we're doing well, we also need to continue that relationship with God. Because then it's just this continuing dysfunctional relationship between being close and separated, close and separated. He is, you know, as we would treat our children or our spouses, we should treat him better. Um, but So that's something to look at. But verse 1, it says, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. So the first stage here that we're going to look at is comfort. He's encouraging them. These are important instructions for the disciples prior to the cross. Now, don't look at the chapter delineations. They came many years afterwards. These are contiguous teachings. They touch each other. So this same discussion that was had in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, it's all this same evening where he's instructing his disciples prior to going to the cross. So what does the Lord do here? I, I, we talked about this the last time. He, you know, This is the temporal. I touch this. If I hit it hard enough, I hurt my hand. The pain, you know, the nerve sends a signal to my brain, and I, I perceive that at, that hurts. My ears pick up the acoustics of the room, and I hear things. I, I see. It travels along the image, along the optic nerve, and goes to the brain. But the truth is that this is our reality, but it's really not reality. We're not here for that long. What Jesus does is, every so often, with his disciples and with us, he takes the curtain of the temporal world, and he opens it up, and he shows us what the real world is about, the spiritual realm, the place that we'll spend eternity in. And it's our choice where we want to go, to be in heaven with him or to be judged. Our choice. All of us have that choice. So he opens up the curtain and he says to the disciples, let me tell you about my father's house. Let me tell you about heaven. A few things that we notice here. Number one, it's a permanent home. This is not our permanent home. And we need to get that straight. I've buried enough people to know that this is not our permanent home. Heaven is our permanent home. Number two, there's plenty of room. Unfathomable size and depth in the kingdom of heaven. Three, there's plenty of care putting into making it comfortable for us. We'll never at one point say, gee, I don't like it here anymore. I'd like to move. You know? I mean, the home I have now was a fixer-upper. You know, my wife and I, new child, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, so I had bought this house that in many ways, some of the rooms were just unusable. And I remember working my fingers to the bone, work and work and work and swinging a hammer, running a saw, nailing nails. And one time, I just, it was late at night, and I said to my wife, I just want to go home. 
and she reminded me that we sold our home. <laughs> so this was it. But heaven, it's not going to be like that. We get there, we're like, wow, this place is rocking. I mean, it is awesome. Fourth, Jesus gives us a firsthand experiential glimpse. If it wasn't so, I would have told you. I came from there, in essence. Jesus came from heaven to teach us, to show us, to die for our sins. And he's letting them know that he's going to leave again and go back to heaven. There's some unfinished business he's got to take care of. But while he's there, he's preparing. There's a place that's being prepared for every one of us. So it's individual. And he's going to come again. And he reminds them of his, of his, his itinerary, so to speak. And fifth, it's personalized. Revelation 2 says that uh, God will give his saints a new name. Well, that's good news for us that have a name all of our life that our parents gave us that we really don't like. So we're going to have a new name. It's going to be personalized and special. I love that. Here's my question. What's home to you? I can tell you what's home to me. When I leave here, I go home, I take off the shoes, I walk around barefoot, put a pair of shorts on, a t-shirt, I raid the refrigerator, I don't care how my, my hair looks, you know what I'm saying? I lounge wherever I want to lounge, that's home. I'm comfortable, I'm secure, I don't have to put on a show for anybody, you know, I can just be me, and I love that. Whatever you have an impression of of home, and we all have different habits at home, don't we? Our spouses know, our children know, you know, maybe not all the church people know, but it's comfortable to us. So this is our home for eternity. I want you, as I'm going through this, to be comfortable with what I'm saying, because I'm just helping you along with what the Lord is saying. All right? You've got to trust him on that. When he says, you believe in God, you trust in God, believe also in me, because I came, I'm part of God, I'm the son of God, I came in human form. Right? Now, what I love about this, too, is, and I want to throw this in here, is that, you know, some people make the dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. He's the same God. There's really no division there. He's revealed more in the New Testament. The New Testament reveals, especially what the Old Testament prophets were speaking of. But Jesus uh, used a lot of analogies. And there was this Jewish wedding custom, very different from ours. What the groom would do is he would... You know, he and his future wife, they would be betrothed. There would be this period that they would have together. And what the man would do is he would go to his father's house. It's a fact. You can look this up culturally. He would go to his father's house and he would prepare a place for his bride. Either he would add on to the house or he would do some arrangements, build it bigger. And he would, it's called nesting, so to speak. So Jesus here, we're his bride. He loves us, Right? He goes to his father's house and he makes the arrangements, personalizes, making it come, right? Isn't this making you all feel good this morning? I mean, sometimes the scriptures are pretty hard hitting. This morning, it's a, it's a message of comfort, not just to the disciples, but to us. So then what the man would do is he would get everything set and he would go to get his bride. Now, whenever he was done, he was so excited for his bride that he would just come whenever he was done. And he would come at an hour that she didn't expect. It's a picture of the rapture, isn't it? Right? We don't know when our Lord's going to come back for us. So he would come with his entourage, and he would sweep his bride off of, of her feet, and then he would take her to this wedding feast. And this went on for days. In Revelation, it tells us about the marriage supper of the Lamb. So once the Lord comes back for us, we go to eat. How do you get better than that? I mean, come on. 
I love to eat. <laughs> uh, so this is what's going on here, and you see this parallel. And you can see the parallel also in 1 Thessalonians 4, where the Lord comes back for his saints. Now, there are multiple fulfillments. In the near future, when we go back here and we look at what Jesus was speaking about, he was going to be crucified. He was going to be resurrected. When he was resurrected, he came back to his disciples. Right? We also know that there's a, another fulfillment in our near future of the rapture, where the Lord comes back for his saints after he's prepared everything. There's also another fulfillment where he comes back in the second coming, finally you know, sets up the kingdom on earth, uh, all the shenanigans of man are going to be stopped, and um, this is going to go on for eternity. So we can look at that. Now, last word on mansions is, it's a shame because this, this teaching has been abused. Some will come because they have a, a certain bend, a theological bend, and they'll tell us that we have to work and we have to be good Christians and we have to pray because we're going to have this beautiful mansion with jewels and my mansion's going to be bigger than your mansion and my mansion's going to have a golf course and yours may have nothing depending on what type of Christian you are. That's a completely worldly mindset. There's no class system. There's no caste system in the kingdom. We're all equal. That's like I said, that's materialistic. Verse 4. He says, where I go, you know, and the way you know. The Lord wants everyone to know the way. In the next few verses, he'll elucidate that. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. Everybody here. And if you're not saved, he loves you too. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever, anybody, any background, anything you're involved in, would believe in him, would not perish, but have eternal life. That's the message of salvation. In one verse, that's pretty, that, that one verse packs quite a punch, I, I submit to you. But let me digress for a moment. He's comforting these men. Does it mean that they were weak men? No, to the contrary. Some have the mistaken idea that Christianity is for weak people. Let me tell you something about these disciples. You read the Gospels? They were working men, right? They had to do strenuous work. Some of them were fishermen, right? Matthew was a tax collector, got a lot of grief. He had to have an internal fortitude. He was a traitor, but he, was, he had to be a tough guy to do that business and see his fellow Jews who hated him. So he takes this, this group. They were strong-spirited. They were opinionated. They were competitive. They argued with the Lord. Imagine that. He's raising people from the dead. He's healing the blind, and they argue with him. So this is the kind of group that the Lord is dealing with, and he molds them into a useful bunch. Now, do you think that you came into this church with too much baggage? I submit to you that the disciples had plenty of baggage. As a matter of fact, in the beginning, when the Lord went to see Peter, Peter said, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. I don't even belong in that bunch. I know what type of person I am. And Jesus says, I can use you. Come on, let's go. Let me show you. Let me make you fishers of men. So this is what's going on. So in our lives as well, I don't care what your background is, God can use you. He can take you as that lump of clay and mold you into the beautiful vase or pottery that he wants to use you. Now, they needed this encouragement. Why? Because their Lord was going to die. Jesus spoke about the resurrection. They couldn't get past the crucifixion. I'm going to rise again. You're going to get beat up. You know, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. They're going to hang you to a tree? So this is what's going on. And, and you've got to kind of put yourself in the disciples' frame of mind. 
as he's dealing with them. All of them were going to fail, but remembering his words was like an oasis in the desert. And that brings me to my next portion of scripture. I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke. It's only two verses. Luke 22, one of my favorite verses. Luke 22, verses 31 through 32. They were all going to fail. Thirty-one through thirty-two, and the Lord said, "Simon, in other words, the disciple Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat." Oh, Satan wants to get his hands on you, Peter. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, there's the assumption you're going to come back to me. Strengthen your brethren. Wow. When Peter was warming himself by the fire and denying the Lord, this must have seemed like a, a fairy tale. It's so, it's, the Lord is so good. He knows us so well. And he knows what he can do in our lives. Right? To sift or to sieve, to see what you're made of, to separate as the wheat is from the chaff. When they would take the wheat and beat it at the threshing floor and throw it in the air and the wind would take the chaff, the lighter part of the kernel, it was unusable, it would blow away, and what would come down was usable wheat. Before they grinded that wheat at the mill, they had to separate the wheat from the chaff. So I'm going to sift you, you know, or, or Satan is going to sift you. He's going to separate. And even though Satan's desire is to destroy you, Peter, wait till you see what God does to you. Right? This happened with, with Job in the book of Job. Satan's desire was to destroy him, but God limited what Satan could do to Job. And it was amazing the turnaround that Job made. He started out as a righteous man. He became even better through these trials. The disciples were all going to fail. Why is Peter focused on? I believe because Peter was the most vocal of the group. And in many respects, the other disciples probably followed him as an informal leader. So Satan wanted to take out the head so he could kill the body. Now, in our society, in our society, failure is bad. What are we taught as Americans? The American dream. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. All those things are good. And what happens when you fail? Oh, you're, you're worthless. You're a loser. You've got to succeed. And I'll tell you what, this stuff has gotten into the church, sadly enough. But I submit to you that failure and losing at times is good. Let me tell you something. I spent decades of my life failing and, and messing things up. And I learned a lot of good lessons from that. So even as believers, when we fail, that's okay. We're being sifted. God is honing our character. But this is the principle. When we fail, give, us, give, give God an opportunity to pick us back up. When we're laying on the ground, give him an opportunity to reach out his hand and say, come here, you've got to put your hand out. I'm going to help you up off that floor. I'm going to pick you back up again, but I'm going to fail again. But then I'm going to help you. I'm going to pick you back up again. And as many times as you fail and fall, if you lean on me and trust in me, I will pick you back up again. There's another principle at work. When we finally learn to stand for a while and we see somebody else fail or fall, God says, give me a hand. Give me a hand, Bob. Heave ho, let's pick them up. We'll do it together. You see that principle? So Peter was going to fail. The Lord prophesied it. But he said, when you return... You're going to be strengthened, and you have to strengthen your brothers. That's the beauty of the Christian walk. You know, we might be struggling with something for eight or nine years, and the Lord finally gives us deliverance, and 
Somebody else will come across our path that's struggling with the same thing, and we can lift out, put out our hand and help them up as well. So Peter, you're going to mess up. I'm telling you this. But when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Powerful. Verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here's confusion. A little confusion on Thomas's part. It's no wonder he gets the uh, nickname Doubting Thomas. And there's a few other things in Scripture as well where he doubts, where he has a little bit of a crisis of faith here. The Lord said, you know. Thomas said, I don't know. The truth is, here, let me make it clear for you. Thomas didn't know that he knew. Does that help? He knew, but he didn't know at this time. I've been trained... um, I've been trained, uh, it's called critical incident stress management, as a police officer and a pastor. And when you find people going through stressful situations, the mind does interesting things. The body does interesting things. Sometimes the mind is forgetful. You You completely forget something you may have learned, and it comes back to you later. There's different ways that the body deals with, or the mind deals with crisis and stress. So Thomas knew. But he was saying, Lord, I don't know. He's panicking. Lord, where's the way? Where's the, you know, the, the trap door? Where's the, you know, the hook that I can jump onto when you're gone and it can take me to heaven too? Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. What does he mean by that? What he means is this. There's no, there's no path you can walk on. There's no things that you can do to get to heaven. Jesus says, it's me. I'm the son of God. I came to die for your sins. So through me, you will have eternal life. It's that easy, Pastor Joe? Yes, it is. It really is. But it is an act of your will. You might even in your mind say, gee, I'm interested in that. But your will tells you something else. Your will gives up all these excuses for why you can't take the way. It's an easy way. But Jesus says not a lot of people find it. Jesus said, I'm the truth. Well, one of the attributes of God, God is love, God is light, God is truth. Jesus says, I'm the truth. Unfortunately, We live in the age of deception. And with the advent of the internet, there's all kinds of stuff, all kinds of information. We're being bombarded with information. Some of it's, though, not true. You know, if you have a problem in your life and you you look something up on the internet, you want to know that it's going to give you a real solution to a real problem. The problem is sin. The problem is hell. The problem is death. We can't stand in God's presence. He's too glorious. He's too perfect. But Jesus says, let me tell you the truth. I'm the way. Because there's many out there that are propagating untruths about how to get to heaven. Right? The third thing, which is the last leg in this, which is the, the part that's really a blessing, and the, the outpouring and the fruit from this is, I'm the life. What does that mean? Eternal life. This is not the life. <laughs> this is not the life. Now, some people do very well in this world, and they're, they're oblivious to their own mortality, and they say, this is the life. This is not the life. Jesus is the life. Through him, through that doorway, through that portal, comes eternal life. A life of bliss and perfection. Something that you can never build or imagine on this planet. So I'm the way, the truth, and life. But nobody gets to the Father except through me. This is interesting because it's exclusive. And that's why when you're a Christian and you say, Jesus is the only way, you may have friends that give you a hard time about that. 
How can you be so narrow-minded? First of all, I didn't write that. (laughs) Okay, but I believe what God says in his word. So it's exclusive only through the Lord Jesus. However, it's all inclusive. Here's the paradox. A lot of paradoxes in the scripture. So it's completely exclusive, only Jesus. But it's all inclusive, meaning that the entire world can, God's got plenty of room up there. Okay? The whole world could come to salvation and get into heaven. But they've got to come through the Son. The way, the truth, and the life. What does this eliminate now? It eliminates religion. It eliminates denominationalism. It eliminates good works. It eliminates spiritual leaders other than Christ. You don't get to heaven through this church or through Calvary Chapel. Some in Calvary Chapel have a little bit of a haughty attitude that, oh, I come from a Calvary. Whoop-de-doo. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Because if not, you're hanging out in Calvary Chapel is not going to help you. It's on an individual basis between you and the Lord. Verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and you have seen him. This is the one of the dozens of God identity statements that the Lord Jesus makes. No one can say that. I can't say that. I don't care if it's a pope, a priest, a rabbi, a pastor. Nobody can say this. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Maybe on rare occasions, but certainly not all the time. Certainly not the majority of time. Okay, We, we still sin and fall short of the glory of God. In the same vein, some say, well, I'll get to know God when I die and go to heaven. Bad answer. No. That relationship is something he wants to cultivate with you now. What's the sense in getting to know your Father in heaven after you've lived this life completely without him? It doesn't make any sense. That familiarity has to start today. And this word know in the Greek is a very powerful word. It's an experiential knowledge. It's familiarity. I know my God. I know my governor because he's my governor. But I really don't know him. I really know nothing about the man. But I know him because he's my governor. So in the Greek, the word would be know and know, but gnosko would be the one that's that experiential familiarity with somebody that you say that you know. I see him, I know who he is, but I don't really know him. So God wants us to know him, a deep knowing. Verse 8, Philip, okay, now Philip pipes in, says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you for so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. conflict. This is an amazing statement by Philip. Show us the Father. Well, abracadabra, here's the Father. And what are you looking for, Philip? Show us the Father. We'll be satisfied. So, we have Thomas, we have Philip, and then later, next Sunday, as we cover the second half of this uh, portion of scripture, Judas is going to pipe up, but not Judas Iscariot. There were two Judases. It was a common name. And you you actually ask yourself, where's Peter? (laughs) Peter's always the one piping up. Probably he got scolded enough times that he's just kind of sitting back and saying, let them ask the questions this time. I'm giving it a rest. 
But I have to be honest with you. From what I know of Scripture, what Philip was asking was ridiculous. Even Moses and Elijah, when God showed his glory to them, he showed part, a small part, of who he is to them. Because we're still in sinful flesh. We're still stuck in these, these bodies of death. If God was to reveal himself in his full glory, we would not be able to stand in his presence. We see this with the priests in the temple and the smoke and the mist that came out of the temple when they were dedicating it. So I got news for Philip. Don't show me the Father. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, Jesus, well, he said, you, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because as the second person of, of the Godhood, he took on a form of a man. So when he dwelt among us people, he was tangible, and he was still fully God, but he was still fully man. So everywhere he walked, he didn't just annihilate everybody. So Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's pretty heavy stuff. It's all pretty heavy stuff, because the Lord doesn't give us halfway options when it comes to believing in him. It's all or nothing. There's no room to say, well, he was a good man. Well, he was a really neat prophet, and he still, some of his prophecies are still coming to pass. He was the son of God. He's the way to salvation. You either have to completely buy into what he's saying, or you have to completely reject him. Jesus does that all the time. He doesn't leave room for middle ground. Now, when you uh, believe in the Lord Jesus, your life will change. Your relationship with him will change for the better. However, it could cause problems with your peers, with your family, with your job, because now you're a new creature in Christ. God is, is opening up the floodgates of heaven. He's doing something with you. But don't be surprised if the rest of the world that's antagonistic to it gives you a hard time because of it. In verse 10, it says, Do you not believe? He's speaking to Philip here, that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Now, that word in the Greek is pistuas, which is in grammar. Greek grammar is very similar to English. It's the second person singular, you. I'm talking to just you, one person. Philip, believe. Now in verse 11, he continues and he says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. And I'm, I'm, I'm making a case here. In verse 11, the word is pistuete. There's a different ending, like, like Spanish and other languages. There's a verb, and at the end it's conjugated to who the person is speaking to, where in English you don't have that. So he says pistuete, believe, second person, plural. A whole bunch of you believe, at least for the works that you're seeing. Now, he was speaking to all the disciples, but I also believe he was speaking to the reader. All of us believe. We need to believe. And that word means to rely on, to trust in. It's a very strong word. In other words, you guys are going through a crisis, but think back, you know. Joe over there was blind, and now he can see, and he can work and feed his family. You know, Fred over there had a withered hand, and the Lord, he, he stretched it out, made it whole like the other one. Now he's able to work and feed his family. Lazarus over there was in the tomb for four days. He was dead as a doornail, and Jesus raised him from the dead. And look at Lazarus. His skin is like a baby's skin. So, guys, don't, don't let the whole thing about the crisis and me being gone and you see me being crucified do something to you where you, you fall away. You've got to keep these things in mind. Remember these things. You've seen them. You've been a part of them. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to change gears here. 
If you walked into this church today and you said, well, that's the Bible. And preachers don't have to prove the Bible through other means, but every once in a while, I'm, I enjoy secular history, I enjoy science, and every once in a while, biology, I'll throw it into the message. Uh, there was a Roman historian, there was a few of them, Tacitus, Josephus, Josephus Flavius, uh, and he wrote a few volumes of a book called Antiquities of the Jews. Uh, volume 18 and volume 20 are the ones that I want to focus on. Now, this guy's not a believer. He spoke about the killing of John the Baptist outside of the scripture, outside of the gospel, secular history, in great detail. He spoke about the murder of James, you know, after the resurrection, the Lord's brother, who was head of that Jerusalem church, the murder of him by Herod, outside of the Bible, outside of the book of Acts. It gets even better. I saved the best for last. Josephus Flavius speaks about Jesus Christ, and he says this, and I quote it. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works. Now, he's not a believer. He didn't say, my Lord, my Savior, the Son of God. He said a wise man. And then he stops himself, and he says, if it be lawful to call him a wise man, because you should have seen the stuff that he did. Lazarus is still walking around. Fred's still walking around. Joe's walking around. So in case he's something more than a wise man, let me just put that in there. Secular history, very impressive. And I can go on and on and on about that stuff. So the works, yes, the disciples remembered them, and the pagans remembered them too. You know, Enough was, was changed through Jesus Christ that they knew it as well. They probably wanted to add Jesus to their pantheon of gods, but you know, Jesus is only the only way. You don't just put him in with a bunch of your other little gods. He's got to be Lord of all. Twelve, the conclusion. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. So you may ask, wow, Okay, he's, this is where the, sometimes the confusion comes in, and a very uh, learned man of the, the Bible told me many years ago, when you speak about Jesus, you have to ask the question twice, from two perspectives, as God and as a man. As God, he could raise the dead. He said, I'll raise myself up after I'm, I'm crucified. You know, the Father had a hand in it, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, but he said, I'm going to raise myself up. Nobody takes my life, I give it up. So he did things that nobody else could do unheard of in in all of human history. But at the same time, as a man, he took a man's body, he had to sleep. He had to eat. He had to rest. Amazing. He was fully God and fully man. And he fulfilled both of those roles. So that's where, once we ask our point to those two perspectives, it, it starts to clear it up for us. When we have this, well, here he seems like a man. Here he seems like God. Yes, he's both. The answer is yes to both questions. So, how will believers do greater works than the Lord? Does that mean we can do something even more powerful? Absolutely not. There's a specific Greek word that's used, and it's more in the aggregate fashion, as in more. So in other words, if you were to count up all the miracles Jesus did in three plus years, now the advent of the church, millions of followers who were filled with the Holy Spirit, so the aggregate number becomes bigger not greater, and the power comes through the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come through the believer. We're just vehicles that God uses if we allow ourselves to be used. So that's what he's speaking about.
13. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So we spoke about the works by the power of the Holy Spirit. And here, we're speaking about mountain-moving prayer. Mountain-moving prayer. Again, Jesus says, in my name. What does that mean? That means in my authority or in my character. And the Father's got to be glorified through this. So I can just ask anything in Jesus' name. Let's, let's talk about this. I want another car. I want a bigger pool. Nice clothes, a tummy tuck, um, you know, a shopping spree. And oh, in Jesus' name, you know. The postage stamp. There it goes in the cyberspace. God gets it. Oh, yeah, sure, no problem. No, it doesn't work like that. It's within his character, and it has to be within his will. There are many things that the scriptures speak about that go in concert with this. So in other words, it can't be anything that would besmirch his character. It can't be anything that we would do or we would get that would denigrate his mission or his will. Uh, Pastor Ricardo, um, when we were at the men's uh, fellowship yesterday morning, he said, you know, I just love to pray because I just love the communion with my God. He says, I just love the fellowship with him. You know, we have to get out of the mindset of bringing a, a, you know, Christmas is coming, a Santa's list, give the scroll and say, here, Lord, give me my wish list. We have to get out of that mindset. Prayer is, is for our benefit, is to grow us spiritually, to get closer with our Lord, to hear the plans that he has for our life, to confirm things that we were concerned about and we were deciding, and we really want his opinion on what we're deciding to do with our future. Look at prayer differently. A few other passages really briefly. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says to pray without ceasing. Everything we do, every facet of our life, give it to the Lord. Uh, James 1.6, it says to pray without doubting. Luke 18 says to pray persistently, not to give up on prayer, not to give up on God. You know, maybe he's saying yes, but not for another year or two. Uh, maybe he's saying you can't handle that right now, but, in a, but I'm going to get to it. But don't give up because in a few weeks you prayed and, and he didn't give us what we asked for. Uh, don't limit God's power to work in a situation. Mark 11 Jesus says, say to that mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and it will do that. Do I believe that? That he was literal? Yes, I do. Now, am I going to, after service, have you guys, we're going to go to the the next hill, and I'm going to say, move and go into the the, the lake over there in Monroe? No, because I don't know that that's God's will. That would just be a show. Do I believe he can do that through one of us? Absolutely, if that's what he wants us to do. You got big problems? What's your problem? I've got addiction problems, I've got relationship problems, I've got uh, self-image problems, 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 problems. You've got big problems, we have a bigger God. And even if you say E, all the above problems, i got all the ones that you just mentioned, he's bigger than those problems. And I believe that he enjoys when we think that we believe that he can do great things. Oh, you know, it's really a big daunting thing, so... I'm not even going to pray about this one. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Give him a chance. See what he'll do with your problems. Another facet of prayer is Psalm 66, 18. It says that if we're in persistent sin, now we all sin, I sin, I have to repent for my sins. 
But if we're in a, you know, it's kind of double-minded to be talking to God and to actively, continually, without trying to abate it or assuage it or attenuate it, be in some type of situation where you don't really care what God thinks. You're going to continue to feed your flesh, and then you're going to pray to God. It becomes double-minded. It's confusing. It doesn't work. But there's repentance. Last verse for today, 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. I believe, and this is where my opinion comes in, um, that the disciples were, were stressed out about this. You know, they got used to him. <laughs> Imagine walking with Jesus for three plus years. Oh, look at that guy. He looks pretty in bad shape. Let's, let's sit back and see what Jesus will do. I mean, that must have been every day was like walking on air with him. And Jesus is, is letting them down a little bit. I'm going to the cross. My relationship with you is going to change. However, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's going to give you the Holy Spirit, right? I will tell you that I've seen many over the years in panicked and stressed situations that they initially forget what to do, but it comes back eventually. Let me ask you this morning, what are you struggling with? What did you walk into this church with? What baggage are you carrying that I can't see, but you've walked in carrying baggage? And maybe you thought somebody said, told me about this church, and you know, kind of looks, there's a lot of cars there. Maybe, it's, maybe they're kind of somewhat normal. I'm going to go check it out. And you're hearing the word, and you're hearing the power of Jesus Christ, and you still got your baggage. What are you struggling with? What is it that you, you're falling down and you, you keep trying to pick yourself up, and you never really get up completely. Are you willing to give it to the Lord? Are you being sifted? You know, If you're not a believer, oh man, that's an easy one. The Lord wants to walk with you today. He wants this to be the day that you and him you know, get together and, and you, you start that walk with him. But if you are a believer, maybe you're struggling too. Maybe you're falling down. Maybe you're being sifted. Maybe you just can't get it right. And you, you sit in the comfort of the church, but when you go home, it'll, it starts all over again. I had a woman uh, who told me how much peace she had by sitting in church. And she just kept saying that. And I said, well, I think because of fire code, I, I can't set up a cot downstairs for you. You know what I'm saying? And Christine's here all the time. I think she has a cot somewhere. But... <laughs> but we, we, we're moved by the word. You know, we have hope. I think that we've seen between the political climate, I don't care which party you're involved in, there's, there's no hope in those parties. They say it, you're not going to get it from them. It's only going to come from a relationship with your God. Amen. Right? Men and women will fail you. I will fail you. I, I won't mean to, but... I may hurt somebody. I may have done it already. Hurt somebody's feelings, because I'm just a man. But Jesus Christ, He wants you to trust what He did for your sins on the cross, and in addition to that, He wants you to be filled with His Holy Spirit, a part of God that resides in you, that will help you. And we're going to cover that next Sunday. Holy Spirit will be para alongside of you, n uh, in, right, and epi upon us. The three Greek prepositions. We'll cover that. Jesus said this, and let me say it again, and he says it again in, in the rest of the chapter. Let not your heart be troubled. You trust in God, trust also in me. I'm here for you. He died for our sins. 
He wants to give us peace, direction, and purpose. Will you pick up the other end of the phone? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you that your word is so powerful that, you know what I love, Lord, is the humanness of the disciples. You put any one of us in that situation.